0: Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwar. Michael, how have you been since last week? I've been fine, Gary, and yourself? Oh, I've been pretty good. Obviously, the big story this week is the US midterms, what happened, why it happened, who is going to be blamed, have the blame put around their neck and be cast out into the wilderness, and we will get to that. But Michael, I just wanted to start um, by mentioning a story that is very complicated, and I'm not actually sure where I stand on it. But... It seems to be becoming increasingly an accepted part of modern society without much discussion of it. I think there's a lot there that really should be discussed, and that is surrogacy. There is uh, government ministers, according to the Sunday Times, have agreed on proposals to give full legal rights to parents of children born through international surrogacy. Now, there's already a bill going through the Dáil, but criticism had been made of that by some parties. I find the entire area of surrogacy—I think it would be fair to say, Michael— Uh, ethically fraught in a way that other reproductive areas aren't like there are people who are against things like ivf for various reasons but i don't think there's anything else that has such myriad ethical aspects to it i mean particularly international surrogacy where generally what you will see is people who are substantially wealthier than the people they contract Buying out women in uh per countries. Which seems um not to be unfair, Michael, kinda dodgy. Yeah.
1: There's an odd absence, very often, in the way these stories are presented in the popular media. Again and again, we tend to hear these stories not so much about Joe Blogs and Jane Blogs uh, who go to some woman in India or in the Far East or in Ukraine to find a surrogate, but it tends to be celebrities that we hear about—pop stars, movie stars, whatever. Um, also, it can be gay couples gay okay, men, because uh, although it's hard to know these, uh, generally speaking, most male couples are incapable of conceiving and bearing a child. I think we can be safe on that one. Yeah, I don't want to be phobic about anything here, but we'll just leave it at that and say that in most cases, male couples are capable of doing that by themselves. And you, So it's presented as a lovely story, two lovely men who are in lovely love with each other and they want to have a baby and bring it in. and so and they announce we are having a baby and then they announce we have had a baby and this is our and there is party that can't help but think but isn't isn't somebody else involved here wasn't there of necessity a third part that seems to have been written out and that it, I find that kind of chilling and kind of creepy. Leaving aside all of the other issues, just this notion that you can just write out the fact that a human woman was involved in this process, but she has been disappeared from the story, disappeared from this happy narrative, is a bit odd and a bit creepy. And there are moves in different jurisdictions where, and, and it may, I don't know, it may in some places it may already be the case, that on that child's birth certificate, there will be no recognition or acknowledgement of that woman at all. That there will essentially be a, what I would call a pretense that the two people, that those two people involved, say two men, were simply and absolutely the parents of this child. I, I don't know. That seems... T- you know, there's a lot of this, Gary, where... <laughs> I suppose you'd need to sit down and think about it very carefully and go through it to try and identify it. But there is a lot about it which you'd say at the beginning there's a kind of a moral intuition. You could call it a gut feeling. Maybe it's simply an emotional response to a new idea that we need to get used to. That just. But there is that sense, gut sense of something being not quite right about this. There are certainly certain aspects of it. And again, and it may be simply just because it's a thing that we're not used to, and it's an it's a, a, a reaction on the face of it. There does seem to be a sense that in instrumentalizing a woman simply as a vessel, and uh, in the space we 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 don't want to get into here over abortion, one of the things that uh, is constantly uh, thrown at the heads of pro-lifers is that they see women just as barriers for babies as just. Vessels and things. Whereas it seems to me in this case there is a a strong smell of that feel of that 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 these women are just seen as vehicles for growing children in, rather than being human beings. (laughs) Also, the discourse is always, and I would say this is true, not just in this case, but in lots of cases. May there can be a feeling that the discourse is about the needs and the desires and the wants just of the adults. And there's nobody standing there and saying, well, from the perspective of the child, what? how does this kind of reproduction impact on them? Does it impact on them? Is it an issue? Is that something we should consider? We are told again and again in all areas of life, well, that love is enough. All we need is love. And the important thing is if you have two parents who love each other, that's the only thing that matters. But I don't think that is the only thing that matters, Gary. And I think we kind of know that that's not the only thing that matters. Of course, it's important to have two parents that love each other. And I don't doubt that we're talking in the vast majority of cases that that is what is going to happen. You to have two parents that will love the child. But whether that is, in fact, all you need Is Another question or whether that is the only thing that is important is not immediately obvious to me. It's also worth pointing out, by the way, that this is not an argument which is decided and obvious to everybody. In France, Germany, Spain, Italy, all forms of surrogacy are illegal. And that's not a decision that's based on old law, but rather new law. These are decisions, because this is a new thing, and therefore they've had to frame new, to frame laws on the basis of it. These are countries which you would regard as, I would certainly say France and Germany, these are modern, secular, liberal democracies. And they've come to the conclusion that, no, this is not something that they want to allow or encourage. So it's not that this is a, a simple one, that everybody in who is... On the right side of history, everybody who is a normal, decent, caring, compassionate, liberal, progressive kind of person just simply agrees um, about it. Even though uh, you do feel like uh, in the popular media here that it's presented as just this kind of un- alloyed, un- alloyed good, a little bit like IVF has just moved on away in, in that sense that it's a new technology, it's a new response to a normal problem. People who in the past would not have been able to have children, but desperately wanted children. This is a solution to that problem. And, you know, we had a problem, which was a bad thing, and now we have a solution, and that's a good thing, and there you go.
0: I think there's there's kind of a willful conflation as well in the presentation with altruistic sur- surrogacy, which has ethical issues, and people may consider unnatural, but is what it is, and commercial surrogacy. So there seems to be surrogacy is generally presented as, as I think you're right, this unalloyed good at least in the entertainment media and you can make those arguments i think with altruistic surrogacy i'm not sure you would win that debate i think many people would still be opposed to it but you can make them but when you're in commercial surrogacy and you are generally in a situation where a relatively wealthy couple whether they're gay couple or straight couple are paying a poorer woman to do this and you see things where rich women seem to have done this in order to avoid damaging their own health or their own figure, which seems, on the base of it, Michael, it's an openly immoral act um, to just pass that on to someone who is purer than you because you can.
1: We have heard in the, uh, a lot in the past about power relationships from the left and imbalances in power. But it seems to me that there are, there's, it's hard to imagine a, a more obvious example of an imbalance of power that you... Some, uh, a rich Westerner goes to a poor country and basically rents out a woman for a period of time. It's, again, uh, maybe it's just a, a kind of a gut feeling or a moral intuition that at times this feels like buying a child.
0: Well, I suppose there is a feeling I, the birth of a child should not be a consumer protection issue.
1: Yes. then there are other issues. Again, which For some people, may, this may not be an issue, but for it, we know... That if you're talking about, uh, say, say in vitro fertilisation, where this the surrogate is not maybe the uh, the the genetic parent, but rather they have they have used the ovum and the spermatozoa of, of people who are maybe genetically connected to the to the couple, and they are implanted in order to increase chances of su- successful implantation. That more than one uh w- there'll be more than one embryo will be implanted so there's there's the the chance that you'll get multiple pregnancy you get a multiple you know, children so triplets or whatever and it it is a practice in those cases to pra- to have what is called Reduction, in other words, if it just they discover that the woman is carrying, say, triplets, just, and the, the couple don't want triplets; they only want one child. Then two, two of the children will be aborted. And for someone like me, I mean, I, I don't think you'd have to be a kind of hardline pro-lifer to feel morally queasy about that. Well, we have, and there have also been cases where children have been found to be imperfect and have been refused or sent back. And at that point, it feels it's very hard to not see this as a com- a really just a blatant commodification of a human being.
0: I mean, I can understand certain aspects of that. Like a lot of these bills uh, or discussions around this in political circles will involve Senator uh, Mary Siri Kearney, who I understand had a very difficult time, uh, tried for quite a long time to become Pregnant, I think, went through multiple rounds of IVF and then eventually went through surrogacy. And that, I think, is the problem here. It is very hard to take a stand and say that someone who wants to get pregnant or who wants to have children, if there is an option available to them, should not take that option because it could be considered immoral. And the senator has been a very strong voice on this. But you can still make the argument that just because you wanted something and you wanted it deeply and honestly and put immense amounts of effort into securing it does not mean you should have the right to do it or to use someone else to achieve that end.
1: Do we have the right to children? Does such a right exist? Can a a man or a woman say, I have the right to have a child? I'm not really sure what that right, what that would mean. I don't know how that could be a universal human right, because even in the best of all possible situations, and even with all the surrogacy you want, I'm not really sure that that's something which could be practicable, that could be something which could be vindicated. But it does seem to me that that's ultimately the claim that's being made here, is that human adults have the right to have children. And I think that's a on the face of it, I think that's a, that's an odd claim. It
0: does create a weird situation where surrogacy is legal in certain countries, but prostitution isn't. Which I've got to say, I find a, just a sort of, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. So you can't pay to have sex with someone, but you can pay to have the results of sex with someone. Uh, yeah, but I, I think the,
1: the distinction, I mean, it again it's a it's a sense it's a moral emotional response, there isn't it? on one it's about sex, and the other this is about love. It's the desire that somebody have to love a baby.
0: I suppose the question is there do you consider these things to be special in some way, not just religious um religiously, but do you consider these you know to be acts which are unlike others so for instance, if you think prostitution should be legal. Do you think, for instance, if a woman goes on social welfare and is required to apply for jobs, that they should have to apply for prostitution jobs? And if you don't, well, why not? Because if you know it's legal and it's not special, what is the actual reason why you couldn't effectively force people to do it?
1: That is not something which had ever occurred to me, Gary, to be honest with you.
0: Oh, well, I mean, many people don't think about the labour law dimension of it. You know, I think you're probably Right.
1: I think that a lot of people have never imagined a situation where you could be somebody in a social welfare office, and the other lady there says to, "So, have you considered hooking? You know, have you, there's a cat house in Galway that's been advertising, and have you considered that?" No, I, I, I'm not saying that that could never ever happen, but I think we're a long way from seeing that as being a conversation. No,
0: nobody, even in countries in which prostitution is legal, and the arguments are that it is just a you know, a thing. It's not special. It's just another job. You don't see those situations happen because most people have a moral intuition that there is something special about sex, or at least different, that places it outside of the normal occupations. It's also one of the one of the interesting things, or one of the amusing things, is every now and then people calling for uh, the legalization of prostitution. will talk about the need to. Uh, end the stigma on prostitution and these will usually be prostitutes themselves but prostitution as a you know workable field michael largely depends upon uh, that aspect of it in order to keep prices stable so it's it's economically short-sighted you know i i I,
1: we should maybe look at getting a a paper done on the function the price function in the sex market and looking at issues around supply demand, but the sort of those intangible elements of the price function like stigma as Gary, that yeah, that sounds like I, I really these are not, not things that I had thought deeply about. Um I think the odd the, the the odd thing is the reason it's a it's I suspect at least one of the one reason, a very large reason, why we think about sex as being something different is that it is through sex that we create life, that we actually, that we create children. It is specifically because of that act, that part of the functionality of sex, that sex is in fact something which is not a normal, uh, just one of those other normal consumer acts or processes.
0: Yeah, I think we should see this, Michael, as a um, workplace exploitation issue. Wealthy capitalists going over to South America and Africa and buying up the local wombs. I think, Gary, that's very close to what it is, in fact, happening. But Yes, but it's impolite to call it that.
1: If the highest value you have is, in fact, autonomy, human freedom, human individual autonomy, that's, and you've got one person who says, I want that and I well and you can see that as a consumer, a desire for a consumer object. But that ultimately doesn't matter. And you have a woman who says, "In res, in I will on the foot of being paid X, I will do Y, and I am free to do so, and I have I'm simply expressing my absolute autonomy as an individual to do so. If if you see that those that as a, a contract between two freely acting human subjects then you just you we don't have any business getting involved in it if however you think that while human freedom human autonomy are very important values but in this particular case you have to take into account that as a result of this contract a third other human being is going to come into the equation and that you have to consider that side of the, the equation and how they are going to be impacted by it or whether or not you say that in fact this Says something rather more about how we see the value of human beings and human life, and that there are certain things that should fall out. So I mean, this is one of the great arguments within libertarianism, isn't it? Should it be? Should it be possible for somebody to sell themselves into slavery, for example, legally? If, as an autonomous, free, self-owning creature, I make the choice based on a figure of money or recompense or any inducement which I consider to be sufficient, I decide to sell myself to another person. Should I be allowed to do that? Or is slavery simply something that we do not want to have within our societies, that there's something fundamentally morally and socially So deeply reprehensible about slavery that we do not want to have it in our society. And we are going to say to individuals, no, even if you want to do that, we are not going to allow yourself to do that. That represents a harm in the same way as we might say to people, we won't allow you to cut your arm off or we won't allow you to
0: castrate yourself. I I suppose um, we should move on to the midterms. So for those who are not aware, it looks like, uh, as we currently stand, the Democrats will Hold the Senate. The Republicans are on track to take the House, but it's no sure thing yet. Uh, There's still a number of things to be counted there. And this comes on the back of both public and internal polling uh, showing that the Republicans were substantially up. And that's not unexpected because midterms are usually not great for the party of the sitting president. And given the background of this massive inflation, Economic trouble, just everything that's going on, there was an expectation backed by polling that the Republicans were going to crush the Democrats. And that has not happened?
1: It has not happened. And I think to be, to, to contextualize, I mean, there's been a certain amount of spin going around by some of our friends over here that all oh, the mainstream media is, is, is saying that this is a, a good result for the Democrats. In fact, they have lost the House and it's a tight race in the Senate and actually it's not a bad result, blah, blah. No. I think on the face of Gary, this is a bad result for the Republicans. Food inflation, energy inflation, presidential rating, approval ratings at historic lows. They hold the House, they hold the Senate, they hold the President. As you said, midterm elections tend to go from the part against the party in power, leaving, even with other fundamentals positive. That by itself, you would expect uh, people to do well, and they have not. What is curious, though, about this, Gary, is it is a very mixed bag. It's not as... And that's why we're getting a lot of the discussion about exactly why this happened or where the blame lies, shall we say. Okay, I think we can... Well, maybe others will disagree, but I'm going to say uh, you can disagree if you like. That One person comes out of this with a big win on the Republican side, and that's DeSantis. Florida had... There was a talk about the red wave before this. Florida didn't have a red wave. Florida had a red tsunami. If you look uh, for those people who are the sad kind of people like myself and Gary, who stay up all night on the night of an American election, we all know that one of the first states that come in that is going to be a bellwether state, although less so now as it becomes more Republican, historically has Florida because Florida is one of the big states, big a lot of electoral votes, and it's a swing state. And we'll all have heard of the phrase Miami-Dade. miami Date's where you have a, a big urban area in South Florida and it's traditionally a Democrat area, right? A lot of it's multi-ethnic, multi-racial, it's urban, it's all those things. DeSantis won Miami Dade and won it substantially. He got something like 78% of the Cuban vote, 50% Uh, In the high 40s of the Puerto Rican vote, which is traditionally a strongly democratic demographic, and 50% of the other Latino votes. So that's a big problem for Democrats. If the Democrats start to lose the Latino vote as part of their coalition, the Democrats are are in trouble. So DeSantis does really well in Florida, but not just DeSantis. Rubio does massively well. All across Florida, it's this tsunami. They do very well in New York, weirdly. Moderately well in Virginia, but in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, they do really badly. So in
0: 2018, which was the last uh, election which DeSantis ran in, he ran against a guy called Andrew Gillum for the Democrats. He won by about 30,000, 30 something thousand votes. In this election, he won by 1.5 million. It's a lot. Now, I mean, in real terms, his vote only went up about 600,000, but I think the turnout was uh, lower than the 2018 election. Uh-huh. So, you know, God knows what it would be if it matched it. But yeah, to go from like 30,000 votes in an election in which 8 million votes were cast to 1.5 million votes above your opponent, that's not bad going in four years. Yeah. So and then you've looked like Fetterman and Fetterman. That has
1: to be one of the big takeouts as well. Fetterman wins.
0: So Fetterman, for those who don't know, uh, he was running against a guy called Oz. Some of you may know from his time on Oprah as Dr. Oz. Um, a Fetterman on the campaign trail seemed to have a stroke. Well, he had a stroke. So he had a stroke, but he then seemed to have trouble actually dealing with people without um, a written version of it being given to him, as in he seemed to actually be having some trouble Processing um, audio because of the aftermath of the of the stroke, and he still managed to win. He, I don't,
1: I don't know if you saw Gary or even you saw some clips of the debate between himself and us. It was car crash stuff. I mean, the, I, 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 I don't know. I, I'm not in a position at all to tell because it may simply be that he's going through a temporary process where. He had to read stuff off a screen because of issues regarding audio and memory, whatever caused uh, by the stroke. But he came across as somebody with cognitive difficulties, right? That's how he presented. And I'm not saying he does, but that's how he presents. Now, that's not something that you would really normally expect voters to find acceptable when they're voting for their their top ticket politicians in a state and in a big state. Mm-hmm. It was, and after the debate, I mean. There's a lot of early voting in the United States, and how many people will watch a debate? And if you watch a debate, how many people will actually change their minds? Blah blah blah. But Oz pulled ahead, and there was it. There, they had there had been a sense that the Fetterman just could not survive this, but Oz was the candidate, and he of the Donald, and he was. And this is one of the things that seems to be a theme running through it. That one of the curious things is. He, that there are states where, say, for example, you have a Senate race and a gubernatorial race, right, Gary? And in the case where one of the candidates had been heavily backed by the Donald, but the other candidate was what what is called the Normie Republican, the Normie Republicans were doing well. And again and again, the candidates backed by the Donald did badly. I, if you want to be really nerdy about it, there was in, in Washington state, there's WA03, which is a, a, a district uh, in the United States, they... They put numbers to congressional districts or to voting areas, whether or not they lean Republican, strongly Republican, lean Democrat, strongly Democrat. This was an area which would which would be called plus nine. So if you're handy is like if it was a game of a game of football game of rugby, the Republicans were plus nine. So they, if you're going to bet on them, they'd be minus nine in the handicap. So it's a, quite a strongly quite strongly leaning republican district and in the context of the economy the state the approval ratings of the presidency and the fact that it was a midterm election this particular candidate was given the democratic candidate had it was listed in the in Nate Silver's predictions as a, having a 2 in 100 chance 2 in 100 chance of taking that seat so that basically means no this will not happen and the person with the fantastic name of Camp Perez won the seat, flipping what had been historically a solidly Republican district. Again, this seems to be a case where the Donald just did it. Because the the Republican candidate who would have been the normie was a, a candidate called Herrera Beutler. But there was a revenge, what was described on the internet as a revenge endorsement. Of the other inter- of the other candidate by the Donald, who took out Bert Butler in the primary and left the door
0: open for the Dame. Part of this problem and, and why part of the thing here and one of the reasons why Trump is going to be blamed by at least the establishment Republican Party is it his tendency to give endorsements for reasons other than this is the candidate most likely to win. Yes, uh, he endorsed terrible. Terrible candidates in many cases because they seem to be personally loyal to him. Um, and that was helped in in several states by the Democrats putting money behind promoting Trump's candidates.
1: Yeah, and that has to be a clue, Gary. That has to be a clue and maybe a warning bell. If the Democrats are actively putting money into that candidate, there should be pause to thought, well, maybe... That tells us something about whether or not that's a good candidate to run in the general.
0: Also, you started to see ads now being put out um, by Democratic-linked organizations taunting Trump that DeSantis is doing better than him and <laughs> that Trump is going to wait too long and then he won't be able to do anything because the Democrats want Trump to run in 2024, where the Republican Party, for the last number of years, has absolutely not wanted that. It is one of their great fears that he will try and run. And partially, that is more establishment Republican types who don't like him. And partially, it's just strategists who think he won't win. And partially, it's people who used to like him and now think, well, it's time for you to go away now. It's time for you to go
1: to go Betty byes now, Donald. You've had your moment, but that moment has passed. It's also just a fact of life. If you look in American politics... Presidents that have won and then lost an election and come back and won and lost, are very, very few and far
0: between. I think one did it? Did Grover Cleveland do it? According to Vox, the Democrats spent over nineteen million dollars promoting uh Trump aligned Republicans over their more moderate kind of mainstream Republicans because they expected they would lose. Those seem
1: to have been the that's at least one of the narratives I mean there may be other issues coming out here, but that seems to be one of the answers. It's very hard not to see some kind of, when, you, when you, you start going through state by state and comparing the Republicans that do well with the Republicans that don't do well, it's very hard not to see that there is a, there is a pattern emerging here.
0: Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. If you think that you've, you've two potential opponents and one is going to pick up people, but is kind of electable. And one is a frothing lunatic. <laughs> you probably want to run against the frothing lunatics. <laughs> you probably but this do. this is not a new thing. And so you have other parts of the Republican Party looking towards Ron DeSantis, who was, you know, initially um, in his 2018 election, he was backed by Trump. Yes. And is fairly fighty and is actually fairly well liked outside of the more establishment Republican Party. Because a number of people look at him like, basically Trump... But competent. Yes. Which is something you're going to be hearing a lot of if you're listening to more kind of right-wing American media over the next while. It'll just be Trump's competency and what exactly is happening here. The Republican Party wants DeSantis to run, ideally this time, but if not in the next election, but ideally now. And Trump is going to get in the way of that. Trump is going to try. Well, the problem they have is that in the sa- what they think could happen is that in the same way a Trump-backed candidate can win a primary, which is a vote of the you know, amongst the party members, but will struggle to win a general, they think that Trump may actually be able to beat DeSantis internally and then just bomb in the actual election.
1: Uh, irrespective of what position you might or might not take about whether or not Trump damaged the Republicans in this cycle... Uh, Trump people will say no he didn't and they'll point to lots of other reasons and people who don't like Trump will say whatever. But I don't think that Donald has helped himself in his reaction after A couple of things. First of all, remember he gave this this thing where he was going to come out with a big announcement in Mar-a-Lago. He was going to say something really big. Listen, wait, nice. I, it... There's this very strong feeling around that, that Trump had anticipated there was going to be a red wave. He had in an interview already pretty well ex- explicitly said, "If it's a big win for the Republicans, that's because i i I did that, and if it's not, well it was not, not it wasn't my fault. There was an expectation that he thought there was going to be a red wave, and then that was he was going to use that as an as the moment to announce his candidacy as it turned out, there was no big announcement. Because there were, and people are saying that's because there was no red waves, and that he then goes in and he starts this absolutely typical Donald attack on DeSantis, and some of it was just the usual stuff. But instead of sounding kind of funny and a bit subversive the way it did maybe in two thousand and sixteen, now it's kind of sounding a bit old and childish and petty and silly. And DeSantis, unlike Yunkin who he said the most stupid things about. But anyway, Santis has not responded because DeSantis seems to have learned. What was the first thing you were told or we all learned when we went on the Internet, Gary, when we went on things like the first time we went on politics forums or later on Twitter? Don't feed the trolls. Don't feed the trolls. And DeSantis, almost uniquely, it seems, amongst politicians in the United States, has learned that lesson. Don't feed the trolls, so all that happens is that Trump just amplifies and amplifies, and he goes up and up, and he's like he's hitting a rubber ball off a a haystack and getting nothing back. He just starts to sound silly, and DeSantis just blithely and calmly sails on, and it 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 makes DeSantis looks better and it makes it makes Donald look worse. But on the subject of things, Nate Silver, I thought, had a, an interesting comment on that on the primary issue. No, Nate Silver is a—he's a—I a, would—I think—a Democrat-leaning supporter, you know. So you can take it. Maybe it's all a big conspiracy, but his take was, you know, what I think people oversubscribe, says Nate, to this notion about the fact that while the elites in, and the the top end of the Republican Party uh, won't be able to get people the the base on board with Desantis because they'll stick to Trump. He said the reality was that actually, back in two thousand and sixteen, the elites were actually very bad at coming to a decision to to actually come in behind one candidate in order to take out trump, and that was actually the problem. Trump was constantly on thirty percent all the way through you know that was where he was, but they there was an unwillingness to recognize that he was a problem that wasn't just going to go away, so eventually they kind of, just by the chronology of the thing, they were forced at the end to come in behind Cruz, but it was too late at that stage. It was all over. And what I think uh, uh, Silver's argument would be that if they had come in much earlier and picked a candidate, say, maybe not, maybe Jeb Bush, maybe, maybe it was never going to be Bush, maybe it just wasn't working, but maybe Rubio, or even earlier in the game, Cruz, although they didn't like Cruz. And it was really kind of a grudging, oh, well, the only person left in this is Cruz, that they, if they had done it earlier, that they they may actually have been in a position to take out Trump in the primary. By the way, can you imagine two more dissimilar men than Ted Cruz and Donald Trump? Isn't it? There is something comic about the idea of the two of them competing for the same job in the same party. You know, and Cruz is there. The guy described by well-known liberal Democrat, Alan Dershowitz, the Harvard lawyer, as being the most brilliant student he ever had (laughs) against the Donald. That was a bizarre matchup. And the thing is, it's different this time. Last time, do you remember that? How many did the Republicans have in the field? 13 candidates?
0: And a lot of those candidates were actually very good.
1: And they were. I mean, the quality... I mean, okay, one might be biased, but the quality in, individually of them, these were very gift competent people,
0: gifted in their own field. They're also very different, as in there was a legitimate widespread of, well, what way do you want the party to go on this in a way that you very rarely see? I think the difference then is that Trump because he had no uh, political baggage, really, apart from you know, the whole previously being a Democrat thing. Yes. Could come across as an outsider and funny and in a very destructive way and good at it. Whereas now you are an old man who lost an election, uh, sniping from the sidelines at someone who is seems to be replacing you. And as I said before, like you can be a good or a bad person, Michael, and still win, yes. but you can't be weak. Yeah, that I think is the issue with Trump now. He's weak and he's making poor decisions.
1: Going back to what Silver's saying is that, as opposed to thirteen candidates in the field and not really knowing where DeSantis is right now, the outstanding candidate. He's it's almost he's like the uncrowned uh, dofa. He is the, the the heir apparent. At his victory rally, the chant was two more years, two more years," which kind of quite quite good and quite funny, you know, that the people who just elected them for a six year for whatever term it is, they no, no, we don't want you to be here for the full term. We want you in two years' time to run for president. Two more years. The, the other thing is I mean, not to get sort of relitigate really the thing. One of the massive advantages that Trump got in the last cycle, which he simply won't have this time. The estimate, the estimate was then that Donald got a billion dollars worth of free media because, for the first X number of months of his candidacy, all of the mainstream media loved him. He was on all the shows. He would ring up. Do you remember? He would be a news program on, and Donald would ring up, and they'd put him on air. And there was a. I think we talked about at the time. There was a really interesting. little anecdote given by one of the Republican commentators. He said that he was on a, a news show and he'd been on this show the same show six months previously. And at this stage Trump was now the candidate and was looking like, oh my God, this guy could win. It's possible. And the uh, he was talking off air with the with the news people and they was they were all worried and concerned. And he said to him, But you, you guys made him I was here six months ago and you were all telling me about how Great it was, how good he was for ratings. If you got Donald up, you knew you were going to get more ratings. You knew you were going to get your numbers up by 20% and 30%. And he threw in something which I wasn't aware of, but in a lot of these programs, ratings is money. Uh, for the production team and for the presenters, if they can if they can hit certain targets, they get more money. So they're highly incentivized to get people on if they know that the people are going to actually impact on their relations. So they were in love with Trump for a long time and gave him a massive amount of free media. Donald spent very little money on his campaign because he didn't have to. And he famously had almost no ground game because, again, that wasn't the kind of campaign he was running. And I don't think he has that this time around. Whatever happens... There's going to be lots of recriminations, but it's it's just ridiculous how quickly the American politics, the, the cycle turns around, isn't it? We are now two years out, which means we are now six months out from the beginning of the next American presidential campaign. It starts eighteen months, basically out. If you could even say it started now, effectively, it is a it is a long cycle.
0: Well, I suppose we will come back to that uh, cycle oh, as it continues, Michael.
1: We, I mean, I'm sure that we will be we'll be talking about this again, and the likelihood that we will not have at least one more or two more conversations about Donald Trump and politics seems. that's a bet I'd be willing to take. And we will be back next week. All the best. Bye-bye.